Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm a senior editor at Light Reading, and today I'm joined by... I'm JP Hemingway. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer for SES, and I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, good to see you, JP. Thanks for joining me. Likewise, great to see you again. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at SES um, for those who haven't heard you on the podcast before. Yeah, sure. I'm lucky enough to have this role that we call uh, the, the head of strategy. So what that means is obviously how do we you know, pilot ourselves through this very changing industry? What's the corporate strategy that we have? But then once you kind of have that set, you can then start drifting into, okay, what kind of satellite infrastructure do we build next? What kind of products do we build uh, around that satellite infrastructure? So I've got sort of those teams as well that bring it together. What spectrum do we use to implement those things? And then uh, sort of things like pricing strategy and marketing about how do we go to market? So it's a really interesting role that is also setting the strategy with the assistance of the broader company. But some of the functions I have really helps sort of deliver part of that too. So it's a really nice blend of strategy and operations role. Yeah, very exciting time just now. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats then. (laughs) (laughs) They're all fun hats. They all make sense together. (laughs) But uh, yeah, there's there's a few hats. That's always always good when they're fun hats. Uh, So SES recently uh, had another launch um, adding to its O3BM uh, constellation of MEO or or Mid-Earth Orbit uh, satellites. Can you walk us through a little bit of uh, what it takes to um, do a launch, what... um, you know, what the setup entails, um, partnerships uh, to make this happen, and, and kind of what the timeline looks at. So just a, you know, yeah. a really high level view of what does it take to launch a satellite like that? Yeah, well, I mean, as we sit here with uh, the constellation that we call O3BM Power, which is our second generation of constellation that we've put into the medium Earth, uh, Earth orbit, um, yeah, the timeline can start, you know, some years back. You know, when you sit down there and said, okay, what do we want to build in the next 10 to 15 years? And there, there's a, there's an interesting problem, right? Crystal balling what the life will look like in 10 to 15 years. And we might touch on the importance of software-defined capabilities that allows you to adapt to that. But really, then you go and, and invite the, the best technology companies out there, people like Boeing and Talis and Airbus and some really interesting startups to respond to your needs and say, what could you build? So classic kind of you know RFP, RFI kind of elements then you obviously need to select a vendor, and this is still some years back before launch, uh, and then really work deeply to select that vendor, really get into design and details, and then sort of have them build it. And then wind the clock forward, you know, some years as they're going through that, we put a project team in their production facilities. We work hand in glove together. Uh, Boeing was actually our partner on this particular constellation, uh, and then really sort of tightly working together. And then as you get closer and closer, and you start talking about maybe months at this point, you've got them built and you start getting into a real interesting test regime. And we actually have to know who we launched with at that point. So we launched with SpaceX just recently. And actually, you have to load in a SpaceX profile into Boeing's test facility. And it goes on this horrendous thing called a shaker table that basically tries (laughs) to shake, shake the satellite to bits. But what it's doing, it's simulating the forces of the launch of that particular SpaceX launch vehicle. So that's in the sort of months preceding that. And then once you're happy with that, you can pack these things up in these incredibly protected containers and either drive them sail them or fly them on sort of huge cargo containers and fly those to the launch facility, which again, for us, was in Cape Canaveral uh, at the the SpaceX facility. And that's in sort of the weeks leading up to launch. And at that point, you kind of know your launch window. 
Uh, that's uh, and so you tend to get a, a week window, um, and obviously that's dependent on whether weather is off and whether as something comes up or slight sort of technical issues. So when it arrives at the site, they then have to take this very carefully, take it out of the container, launch them onto the adapter, and that's the thing that sort of you know, carries the satellites in, in the fairing, the nose cone, if you like, of the of the rocket, uh, and then they do final tests again to make sure they're still all good and they're still talking, and then finally these are the days just before the launch window opens, and then then you're into into launch. And that's when the the excitement really starts. Yeah, and I, I had the um, you know unique opportunity to uh, tour the Boeing facility. So Boeing is your manufacturing partner, and then SpaceX is the launch partner, correct? That's right. That's right. And I'm really pleased you saw the Boeing facility. You can see them in their construction status, and they changed their entire production facility to accommodate our kind of satellites. We're really breaking new ground with what these satellites could do. And they had a lot of really new groundbreaking technology they were developing for us uh, to take this satellite to market. So yeah, we had a lot of intense years, years of work working with Boeing to bring this to, to fruition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting to see, like you mentioned, the um, the shake table, uh, and then there's also, uh, you know, radiation to test uh, the if it can withstand the the sun radiation. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of testing. It's impressive facilities, right? And you put it in this huge cryogenic <laughs> environment that they freeze it and then put almost like big toaster racks either side of it to have the the impact of extreme heat on one side and extreme cold on the other. So it's a fascinating facility to go to for sure. Right. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, so what is a what is a successful launch look like? Um, when are you able to break out the champagne? <laughs> See that that's actually a really interesting question, and you know I've, I've been lucky enough to go to a few launches now, uh, and it's probably not the same time as when most people watching them would would, would you know, break out their champagne. So mm-hmm. of course. All the lead up to that, I've just said, successful testing, getting them mounted into the into the fairing on these adapters. Then they roll it out and it gets sort of mounted and taken vertical. And then we go and see it you know, before they put the fuel in. And obviously, we all go to a safe distance and watch it with a bunch of our customers who tend to come and see these things too. So then, of course, the liftoff is the, you know, it's this exciting thing. You hear the rumble, you feel the rumble, I should say. So that's good. We love that piece of it. And then, you know, when you're into this sort of rocket scientist piece of things, you know, there's this thing called Max-Q where the, the launch was going through. It's the maximum stress here. So once you're through that, that's good. We still don't get the champagne out then, to be really clear. You know, <laughs> th- th- then you see the first stage, you know, break away. And if it's a SpaceX reusable, everyone loves that piece, right? Because you see the first stages come back to Earth. And it's a, it's an incredible thing to see the, the landing and how they do reuse. And we've been a, a long believer in this reusable. We were the first people, actually, with SpaceX to, a re- to use a reusable reused uh, element of their launch vehicle so we've been a long-term believer in this in this partnership so then you know they come back down to earth but the second stage is still boosting and taking our satellites to where they need to go to the fairings now come off at this point because there's obviously no friction doesn't matter that the satellites are exposed to you know the, the vacuum at that point and that's still not time to get there so then eventually the the the, the thing we get really interested in is when they get ejected so they get pushed away from the second stage, and now we, we launch two at once. So we like to see two of them, you know, successfully get ejected from the the second stage. Still don't celebrate at this point. So then, point they're, they're actually out there, and then obviously there's a process they go through where they start, you know, activating themselves. So then we start getting excited because these things are actually now separated away from the launch vehicle. Yeah, and the best thing is, is the final piece when we do pop the champagne is we talk to them, and they talk back to us. 
And that's when we, that's when we say things are good, right? That's when we say we're actually we're in we're in service. We can speak to them. They're speaking back, and then we start processes like you know we can tell them to unfurl their solar array so they can start testing charging the batteries, etc. So then they're, they're kind of ours, right? And then after that, um, you know, there's electric propulsion, which is they don't use rocket fuel in there anymore. It's basically an electric ion propulsion, slower but super super efficient. And that's when they start moving them into the actual orbit we want to go and the position around the Earth they want to go in. And that can take months. In fact, it typically mm-hmm. takes months from that piece. So first celebration is separated. They're talking back to us. Yes, that's great. But really, our team's work really starts when we start doing yes, this sort of propulsion and then the final in-orbit testing when we start actually doing the real hard testing of the overall system, speaking to the ground networks, get everything, you know, all the software's working, and that's the real hard work. Uh, and that's what's ahead of us at the start of next year and sort of uh, start of um, you know, January through February and March. That's all that kind of detailed in orbit and finalized testing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a complex procedure. A couple of times you could pop the champagne. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say you need to get a couple bottles, I suppose, because um, it really is, uh, you know, it, it sounds like um, a successful uh, launch, like actually getting the equipment into space is just one piece of it. And then um, deploying the solar arrays, getting it into position, making sure all those software components are working correctly. Um, so can you um, give us kind of a, a, a broad picture of, you know, what stage is this in this particular constellation? How many satellites will you have? And what's yep. kind of the, the end goal for this constellation? Yeah, so we've got four satellites up there already, uh, and the last two that we launched are in this kind of phase of going to their final orbit and going, getting ready for their in-orbit testing. So six is what we need to get a, a full coverage around the Earth. And what do I mean by that? Um, if you're on the ground, you want, always want to be able to see two satellites. You want to speak to one, and of course, because they're closer to the Earth than traditional geostationary, they are moving. So if you're on the ground, you'll, you'll, you'll be tracking uh, the satellite that you're talking to and it's taking your signals, but you also want to get ready for the next one. So you need six, so you can always have that seamless handover so you get no, no there's always a make before break. Effectively, you never never drop the signal and that's what we need seamless. So that's what we need six for and that's what we're getting ready to go into service with in early Q2 of 2024. I think it's important to say that not everything always goes perfectly. Um, you know, we, we said publicly, you know, a few weeks back um, that ultimately we had found some issues on the satellites that were already up in the sky. They're going through these certain power trip offs that we saw. The good news is we know what caused it. We know how to fix it. And we actually are fixing the remaining satellites we have on the ground. But of course, we've got six up there already. Uh, and what we've had to do on that is do some uh, software work around some different conops, you know, the concept of operations, and actually put some of the satellite elements in more of a resilience mode. So if we do get any of these power trip-offs, it's all redundant. And ultimately, the customer won't see, see the issue. But you know, never the right time to find these things out when they're up in space. You can't send a spaceman out there to fix it with something there. So it's all about working with your partners like Boeing, uh, developing software and workarounds to it. But that's been a fairly intensive exercise. But you know, we have them, we have the capabilities, we've got the workarounds, and we'll be delivering service to customers on those six um, you know, in Q2 of 2024. Uh, and then we'll be launching the remainder of that with the the fixes, if you want to say, in hardware, and then they get launched towards the tail end of, uh, of next year, the, the next one. So, yeah, back back on track. Okay, excellent. And so uh, from a, um, you know, we, we mentioned software briefly. Uh, what, what are some of the um, software-defined uh, capabilities that these satellites have? And also, uh, how do they enable and support 5G services? 
Yeah, great question. I, I kind of hinted at why we need such software-definable capabilities at the start. When you're, when you're building things that have a lifetime for, let's say, 10 years, which is typically what we build ours for in the, in the medium Earth orbit, I can't sit here and tell you I know exactly what the communications needs of the industry in 10 years, right? So you need something software-definable, and that's one of the things that we're able to do in, in MEO in particular is build really intelligent um, capabilities into the satellite itself. So there's three layers of uh, software definition or software control. The first is at the, the satellite itself. So this is a fully beam-forming satellite. Our previous generation literally had 10 steerable physical antennas that could steer beams around on the Earth, but it had 10 of them. We, in the, this generation, we can beamform up to 5,000 beams per satellite. So that's complete control of where we direct power and how much frequency we put into that power into that particular location. So you can really be flexible about where you, where you send the, um, the capabilities. That's the software control of the software-defined satellite. Clearly, you need a brain that knows, well, when do, you do, when, when do you need power? Where do you direct that power? And we've got this thing called an adaptive resource controller, ARC, as we call it. And if you want to call it, that's the space brain. That's the thing that knows, well, I could direct the satellites, but the reason I need to do that is I need to uh, direct that to 15 ships all in the same particular area or something. So they know how to power balance across those. And that's something that we have developed, actually. That's our, our sort of intellectual property. And the third layer is at the network orchestration layer. Because ultimately, we're not building things from space just for fun. We're building end-to-end IP and Ethernet networks. So they have to work like everyone expects them to. So they're fully standardized. They're MEF, LSO kind of standardized services. So if you're a telco, you shouldn't really care we do it over space. It's basically just an extension of your network, and it looks and behaves as if it's fiber. The performance is great. You know, the guarantees are there. The products are defined the same way. And that's a, an evolution of some, uh, we call it MDSO, like a multi, multi-domain multi service orchestrator. It's MAF-based. It's uh, actually an evolution of ONAP that we work with Amdocs. And they've, they've extended terrestrial to adapt to space. And the only big difference is our endpoints move, right, quite often. So you need to have this sort of temporal ability. So three layers of intelligence and three layers of software control. And if you think about how that helps us with 5G, uh, 5G has obviously got two things. I tend to think of in two camps. You've got the densification and expansion of 5G cell towers. And one of the things we're doing with that, of course, is making sure that you don't just put cell towers in where you've got fiber today. You can densify inside a city without building new fiber. So you can use the connectivity from space into the urban city areas. But of course, the more traditional one is to you can reach places the fiber hasn't got to. So we can really roll, help roll out ubiquitous coverage of 5G and all of the, the benefits aren't for cities. This is about closing the digital divide again. So that's something else that we do. The other element of 5G is I find really fascinating is actually private 5G. And this is where 5G is going to be used for industrial applications. And that's something we're working on an awful lot about. Hey, if you want to support maybe five oil rigs out in the, in this sort of uh, offshore, or, or, sorry, offshore oil rigs, and you want to be able to do some cloud applications across them all, that could be digital twins. It could be uh, health and safety systems. And all of them are doing things differently. Think about being able to have a completely flexible fiber on demand when you need it off those offshore oil rigs. And you've got maybe an edge compute on the rig, but the main compute going to off the rig, enabling these really secure private 5G domains to do all of that sort of next-gen industrial processing. That's where I think we're probably going to do more immediate 5G work. And it's driven us to have partnerships like working with folks like NTT, who will deliver that complete end-to-end space-enabled private private 5G to, to solution to the market. We've also got partnerships with Microsoft using their similar capabilities. So, yeah, that's a really interesting space for us, I think, no pun intended, uh, in terms of the, the role of space in 5G.
<laughs> I feel like in your line of work, you, there's so many space puns that you can <laughs> access. It could That's be, amazing. yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, and you, uh, the the oil rig use case is really interesting. And then also you all um, support a lot of cruise ships as well. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it, to the traditional markets for satellite are those things that move. You can't you can't <laughs> grab hold of a ship and put a fiber on it, right? I and mean, it right. just doesn't work. Um, so th- <laughs> those markets, exactly. And and you, but you think about what's going on on cruise ships, or maybe on um, cargo ships, or even goes on an aircraft. You know, whether you're expecting different passenger experiences, whether you're flying or on a cruise ship, particularly on a cruise ship, you're expecting you know, the very best levels of service. They should be knowing your every demand. They should be knowing your every whim. And what's going on on there is that you as a person, you're in the internet of things, you're the thing, right? And the ships know, you know, who you are, what your personality is, what your preferences are. And of course, they can't do that without effectively a digital twin on shore, knowing exactly all the capabilities, all the shows they could book, all the drinks they may want. So the amazing cloud compute applications our cruise ship customers do, and they can only do that because they are, they're effectively fiber connected without a fiber because of the, the space connectivity. On the cargo ships, it's actually much more about health and safety and the, and the future of this is the monitoring. Each of those containers could have their own monitor and you could be doing for security, temperature control, um, you know, just location and all of those things could be wrapped up again, maybe via a, a private 5G bubble on the ship. And then of course, all of that data is being collected and big operators like Merce can be making really smart ship-wide decisions about where, where they send traffic and where they have these containers going. So that, that's really interesting. And then on air, airplanes, the whole world's divided is how connected do you want to be on an aircraft, right? I mean, used to be at least you get a few hours off when you're, when you're flying, <laughs> but now expectations have changed, right? And they want to make sure, A, you want like a great passenger experience from an entertainment perspective, but also if you really have to, you have to work sometimes as well. So this is the point. If I want to be able to log into my company's VPN, I want to be able to use cloud applications like I would do if it was in my office, you need high-quality connectivity again. So all of those things from a mobility space have, have really changed the expectation, and we've had to change our capabilities, our performance, our throughput to make sure we can meet those demands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that um, the use cases supporting um, kind of manufacturing, logistics, transport, those are really interesting. Um, almost like a floating smart city <laughs> a yeah, little bit. Exactly yeah. what it is. Uh, and so uh, tell us a little bit about, for those who maybe aren't as familiar, um, some of the, the main differences between Mio and Leo uh, satellites is part of it that, you know, those 5,000 beams capability that you mentioned and where exactly the satellites are targeting. Uh, yeah. what, what are some of the big differences? Yeah, so the satellite world tends to think of three three orbits, effectively. It's not quite that simple. Let's keep it relatively simple. So there's the classic geostationary, which is about 36,000 kilometers from the Earth. And it's there for a reason. It's at the, at the right orbit, so it moves at the same speed as the Earth. So it's stationary. It's stationary of a particular spot. Really, really good for focusing your energy, your connectivity over the area of interest that's underneath it. Uh, you can get really good cost efficiency. You can reach you know thousands of millions of users over a continent, as an example. And they themselves have changed, right? They're software-defined geostationary uh, satellites that really are able to you know beam form and move capacity around, but over the location of interest that you see. Uh, they tend to be a little more expensive because they are generally bigger. They've got to serve a large continent, but there are small ones as we've evolved you know, the industry, um, but really useful for those kind of you know, reaching lots and lots of users, uh, but typically not with massive throughput. 
because you're far away and it's harder to get that much energy back to Earth. Uh, so they tend to be what we tend to call maybe thinner routes. There's not quite so much capacity needed. And of course, it has latency. You know, it takes a while to go all the way out to geostation and back. There's ways to spoof that, but ultimately, naturally, it's, it's maybe harder to get those low latency applications done. So then if you switch to medium Earth orbit, so by the way, we, we have over 50 satellites in geostationary, so we, we know that world well. Uh, in medium Earth orbit, we were the first to go there. We've now been operating there for 10 years, actually. It doesn't feel like it, but 10 years in that orbit. Uh, and that is about 8,000 kilometers, uh, give or take. So you're now closer to the Earth, which means you can still see quite a bit of the Earth, not as much if you're further away, but your field of view, as they call it, is still really large. Uh, but you're now closer that the performance is much higher throughput, um, you know, you, you would certainly get latency. We haven't found a, a, an application that won't work, if you want to call it that, over latency. You asked about 5G before. You don't need any special specs. 5G works as if it was thinking it was connected over a short piece of fiber. It just happens to be connected over Mio. But the reason we put all these beams in there is that you're, you can now see an entire continent, but you obviously don't want to illuminate a continent equally. You want to be able to put it over the main cities, as an example, right? So that's why this beam forming is really important in, in medium Earth orbit. And then in low Earth orbit, which is more, give or take, about 1,000 kilometers, clearly you're really close. The latency is as low as you could probably get it. Um, you know, the throughput can be really, really interesting too. But ultimately, uh, you need to think about, you know, you're not building as smart satellites because you need to build thousands. You need to build, you know, instead of building six to get coverage, you need, you need to have literally hundreds or in most cases thousands of satellites to build this truly global coverage. Otherwise, it's only seeing parts of the Earth. So there's a real trade-off. They're each good in their own right. So we actually operate all three orbits today. So we have our own assets in uh, GEO and MEO. And actually, in certain markets, we've recognized that customers actually really want a service that's got MEO, GEO, and LEO. And we actually signed a partnership with Starlink, actually, fairly, fairly recently, where for cruise customers, they're going to have the very best of MEO, GEO, and LEO. And we're doing some smart work with things like SD-WAN to make sure we know which orbit to use for which traffic at the right time. So integrating all orbits, I think, is a, is a fact of life going forward. So that's something that we'll, uh, we'll certainly do more of. And, uh, you know, I think that's what customers need. They want the, the best connectivity from space matched to the application they need at the time of day they need it. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of reminds me of, of some of our previous conversations of, I, I think it's really interesting how, um, you know, SES is utilizing some technologies that we would normally associate with terrestrial service providers, such as, you know, you mentioned SD-WAN, 5G, um, but there's also the capability to utilize these with satellites. So um, that I think that's really interesting. Well, it had to be. I think maybe you and I spoke about it before, but the world of satellite used to be, we only use it for the corner cases because the mm -hmm. performance, performance isn't where it needs to be. I'll use it when I really have to. And if it's really special and a little bit difficult, we'll have teams who are used to doing the special and difficult stuff. When we're now building performance that's more like fiber, we have to make it relevant. We have to do it at scale, which is what our next generation constellation does, these 5,000 beams and super high throughput. So you make it relevant, but you can't make it difficult. All right. And if you start making, oh, space is difficult, it needs all these different standards over here, and you still need rooms of specialists, well, that doesn't work. You know, If you're a company that wants connectivity to you know, a hundred sites on the mainland and you also want to provide maybe a mining corporation with, you know, a hundred sites that don't have fiber connectivity in the, in the, in the really rural places, or you want to, you know, some on-site energy sites and then 50 on off-site energy sites, you don't want a completely different paradigm. You don't want to operate differently. You want a, a single pane of glass that says these 50 sites on fiber, 
I don't see any difference from these 50, 50 sites on satellite. So leveraging SD-WAN to manage orbits and orbits with fiber or orbits with fiber and 5G even. Our, our cruise ships, for example, want connectivity from whatever they can use, satellite, uh, ship-to-shore Wi-Fi, 5G connectivity. So multimedia aggregation is something we have to do. And we've always been pushing the boundaries to make our satellite adopt the telco standards so that people like telcos and cloud companies can see these as a natural extension. We're doing a lot of work with Microsoft and Amazon so they can use us as an extension of their enterprise customers to reach those people that don't normally think they could use cloud applications uh, as an example. But doing it special and niche just doesn't work. You've got to be standardized, scalable, and automated. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and just as we uh, wrap up, what's next for um, this particular constellation? What are you excited about in the coming year um, for uh, for what's ahead for the O3B Empower satellites? Well, getting it into scalable service is the thing we're most excited about. And as are our customers, we've actually done a couple of demos with customers with the first couple of satellites uh, up there, and they just were blown away by it. We did a demonstration with uh, Reliance Geo, which they branded it as Geo Space Fiber. And they were saying it's gigabits <laughs> from space. You know, they're just saying you have to rethink <laughs> what like you that. think space can do, right? So that was a really interesting demonstration that we did. And we've done a, a bunch of those around the world. We, you've done with stuff with Microsoft. We've done some with with Do, with, you know, the stuff with, with Geo. And, you know, so I think the excitement of our customers wanting to get their hands on this stuff and do it at scale with us is something that I'm most excited about. Uh, and really, you know, th there's customers that aren't just telcos and cloud companies. There's governments who want access to this system so that the importance of sovereignty, what I mean by that is the ability to have always on secure connectivity for your country or for the defense of your country or for the security of, of your IT. And there's governments working with us to sort of carve out a piece of our virtual constellation and use it as, if you like, their, their, their access to space. So there's some really interesting government projects that, that have already been committed to us effectively that they'll take those services. So getting the first 16 services, absolutely there. And then we're going to launch a whole bunch more of these uh, with um, uh, yeah, we've got to 11 up there and we're going to have 14 in total. Uh, getting those out of the Boeing facility, launched with our partners at SpaceX and getting those into service. So beyond six, it's all about just more and more capacity. And that's what we get from this. So can't, can't wait to get it into service. We've got well over 160 or 70 terminals already deployed on the ground and tested on our old constellation. That now can't wait to flick the switch <laughs> and put it onto our new constellation because the performance is just beyond dreams in terms of capabilities, flexibility, virtual fiber stuff. So yeah, can't wait our customers to get their hands on this with the, the full scale. Yeah, we'll definitely have to get some of that champagne for next year. <laughs> get that ready. <laughs> Absolutely. We're in. We're All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, JP. Uh, this has been really interesting. I appreciate you going over what a launch looks like and, and what's next for this constellation. My pleasure. Always excited to talk about our future of our constellations and the services for our customers. <laughs>